Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 13 of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, Greater Wessex. If you're following me in real time, then when I say last time we, that means last time we six or seven months ago. Sorry about that, oops and all. But anyway, last time we came to the end of the reign of Offa with his death in 796 after many decades of mercy and supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And we heard how the best laid plans of men went astray when his son died, wasting utterly the enormous time and effort and very probably cold-blooded murder he'd invested to ensure the survival of his dynasty. Now, the 9th century is an absolutely cataclysmic period in the history of England. There can be few more dramatic and blood-soaked. 
a genuine furnace in which England begins to be forged. We start in this episode by looking at the changes in the first third of it that led to a new leadership within the kingdoms, before the arrival of the Vikings swept all the pieces from the board and changed everything. You will be delighted to know that into this first episode I shall slip my wife's favourite joke, just as I did in 2011, first time around. I am sad to say this is no reflection on the quality of the joke, it's purely sentiment. The general political situation is of a Northumbria which continues to give nominal recognition of overlordship to Mercia, but nominal is the operative word. Kent, Wessex, East Anglia, Little Sussex and Essex, all these dance to the Mercian tune, or at least they do when Offa was king, but there are tensions. Anglo-Saxon England is deeply particularist, that is to say, people were deeply local and regional, and indeed personal in their loyalties. So as we've seen all through the 7th and 8th centuries, just as one king wins some sort of ascendancy for his tribe or kingdom, every time such a king dies, all the cards are thrown up into the air again. Furthermore, let me just remind you that primogeniture, inheritance of the eldest son, is by no means established by this time. Really, any member of the royal family has a claim, any atheling. Early and mid-Anglo-Saxon England had instability hardwired into its very basic code. All of this meant that the death of Offa's son was the starter pistol for a period of dynastic confusion in Mercia, which really didn't help its political position. For the next 40 to 50 years, there appears to be three families which have a claim to the title within Mercia, and it duly moves between them. So, fair enough, we at least start with the line of Puba the father of the great pagan warrior Pender, a descendant of one of Pender's brothers, in fact. The man concerned was called Chenwolf, and along with his brothers, Cuthred and Chulwolf, they will rule Mercia from 796 until 823. Historians, seeped in wild creativity, have dubbed this the Sea Dynasty. I will leave you to guess why. However, the Sea Dynasty lose their grip to a man called Wiglaf, who will rule for 13 years, from 827 to 840. I do hope you're enjoying all these dates. There are more, sadly. Unfortunately for Wiglaf, his dynasty does not last long after him. And before I move on, who out there would like to guess what we call Wiglaf's dynasty? Well, it's the W dynasty. Anyway, Wiglaf's grandson, Wigston fell foul of the third dynasty, represented by a man called Bertfrith. Bertfrith belongs to a dynasty, the title of which I'm going to keep secret. Essentially, Wigston refuses to let the bees oh, marry into his family. And so Bertfrith lured him to a meeting and stuck a dagger in the back of his head. Though as it happens, Wigston becomes a saint, so who's singing now? though it also has to be said that all he had to do in Anglo-Saxon England was essentially move and he'd be made a saint. I exaggerate for effect, obviously. But, other fact, this is the saint, Wigston, that W.H. Auden was named after. Fab fact. Anyway, this B dynasty will then rule Mercia until the Vikings render the whole debate academic anyway. So to summarise, three competing families swapping the throne of Mercia between them through the 9th century.
Now, ask me why I'm telling you all of this. Well, the story of 9th century Mercia needs to be seen against this background. Mercia was the political equivalent of a modern Birmingham. It's an Anglo-Saxon political conurbation. The Huissa, the Magentseiter, the Herefina, the Rochtenseiter, I could go on. A collection of petty kingships that had been absorbed into the Mercian body politic. But the way this happened seemed to be very different to the way it happened in Wessex. In Mercia, many of these petty kings then became aldermen. We've spoken about this under offer, and that's great, no problem. Except it perpetuates this feeling of particularism, of regionalism. If your alderman is a descendant of the kings of old, the chances are they will command your loyalty and their family over the distant Mercian king. The alderman will be hereditary, and that alderman and the line of aldermen will remember and value his glorious heritage. And every new Mercian overking has to go through the process of getting these sub-kings to sign up again. The policy extended to a degree to other kingdoms, so Kent being the best example on the far south-east of England. Kent, though owning up to being bossed by Mercia, is very often kept at arm's length by Mercia, either keeping its own king or being given a Mercian ruler but with considerable autonomy. But in Wessex they seem to do things a bit differently, and in the long run it will pay dividends. Wessex has built up a tradition of public servants, if you like. Aldermen there are not sub-kings of the old tribes, like the Mionwara, for example, and there are plenty of them in Wessex, just like Mercia. These aldermen are men of the great families from anywhere in Wessex rather than local kings, or their aldermen will tend to be taken from local families wherever they do their job. But they win their appointment through their closeness and service to the king. It's a job rather than an inheritance. Thus, although there's competition for jobs... There is a strong corporate sense as well. These men work together under and to the King of Wessex. The tensions and tendency to discombobulation is less strong. So this is a challenge for Chenwolf, our new King of Mercia, and inheritor of the throne of Offa, a challenge he must meet. And while he's dealing with all his aldermen stroke sub-kings, the fires of liberty burn brightly in the breasts of Mercia's subjugated kingdoms, Kent and East Anglia in particular. Kent, Garden of England, is a little place, unlike Camelot, which is a silly place. But just like England's smallest county, Rutland, which won't exist until the Normans, by the way, Moulton in Parvo, so much in so little. Kent is the oldest Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Kent is the only place that rivals London for continental trade. Kent is home to Canterbury, Archbishopric. Just to remind you, England traditionally had two archdioceses, Canterbury and York. But Offa had only just added a third a few years ago, Lichfield in the Midlands, because he hated the Kentish Archbishop of Canterbury of his time, and any king needs an archbishop, was his view. Anyway, the point is that Kent counts, however small it is. But also, Kent, still after all this time, yearns for its independence. Enter Eadbert Prane. Eadbert was a member of the Kentish royal family, and therefore a rival to Offa's domination and control of Kent. There's a real story about Eadbert, which, because it's so long ago, we only know the very top level. If anyone's time-travelling, dig into it, would you? Anyway, he'd been exiled by Offa, 
And more than that, just to make double sure, he'd been forced to take holy orders, which debarred him from ever becoming king. Edbert was clearly a determined young man, though, and he jumped ship and ran to the court of Charlemagne. Offa was horrified at Charlemagne's treatment of Edbert. As far as Offa was concerned, the best he should have had from the great Charles was the rough end of a pineapple. Instead, Charlemagne treated him with consideration, even sent him to Rome. Charlemagne might want to be friendly with Offa, but you don't get to be the most powerful ruler in the known world without using the tools that come your way. So, let Offa stew. Charlemagne had a card he just might decide to play sometime in the future. When Chenwell forced his way through the crowd of kin and made himself king of Mercia, everyone saw their chance to be free, certainly East Anglia and Kent. But it may also be that parts of Mercia tried to turn the clock back. Certainly there's a deal of trouble with Ahwissa. But in Kent in 796, Eadbert reappeared, sent back into the Anglo-Saxon body politic like a bacillus to cause weakness and disease by Charlemagne. Kent welcomed him with open arms. Come to my arms, my beamish boy, and together they pushed out the Archbishop of Canterbury, clearly a placement of Mercia anyway. And the beer flowed, or the ale flowed, actually. Back in Rome, the Pope was as cross as was Chenwolf. By becoming king, Eadbert had broken the laws of the church and was apostate. But Eadbert would no doubt claim he'd become a priest under duress. And at the same time, in East Anglia, a man called Eadwold, about whom we know precisely Zip, also raised the flag of independence. And yet again, Mercia would have to prove herself. In fact, the only place that seemed happy with the status quo was Wessex, where Beortric anyway owed his throne to offer. All very shaky, and given the general story of the 9th century, it's really tempting to write Mercia off at this point. And if you come from the Midlands, like me, to sigh sadly, bemoan the loss of the good old days and let the tears gently roll from your bewhiskered cheeks into your real ale as you sit in your shed contemplating your open-toed sandals. But under the Sea Dynasty, Mercia was far from finished. After two years getting his act together at home, Chenwolf made like the Assyrian and Sennacherib and came down on Kent like a wolf on the fold. The angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And Edbert Prane and his fledgling rebellion fell in its path. As the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for 798 put it, Chenwolf, king of Mercia, ravaged the Kentish people and the people of Romney Marsh. Their king, Prane, was taken, and they led him bound to Mercia and had his eyes put out and his hands cut off. Eadbert was still officially a priest. However apostate he might be, this protected him. If having your eyes put out and hands cut off can be described as protection. He was then imprisoned in a Mercian monastery being built where tradition has it he left in 811, when the Abbey Church was finally completed and dedicated. More than that, we do not know. Chenwolf installed his brother as a sub-king in Kent, and once again, Kent writhed under the heel of the invader. In Wessex, Beatrix was king. Beatrix very probably owed his position to offer support originally. Part of the deal had been that Beatrix would take with him one of Offa's daughters, a lady called Edberg who was installed at the court of Wessex as queen. Beatrix was a good example of the way that Mercia had very often liked to execute and operate their supremacy through intermediaries. 
but every so often the finger of the iron hand of Mercia stuck awkwardly through the velvet glove, such as offer granting a charter away, giving land in Beatrix's country of Somerset without asking for permission. But generally, the client king had a lot of autonomy. So, as we said last time, there's another family out there that was a potential rival for either Kent or indeed Wessex. This is a young man called Egbert, a man for whom breakfast had eggs but no bacon. Now, there's a little confusion as regards Egbert's ancestry. Was he of the House of Kent or of the House of Wessex, or both? I think the debate is a little too involved even for me, so let me say that it's likely that his descent is of the House of Kent, but given the chain of events, some connection with the House of Cherditch of Wessex must also be at least in theory lying around somewhere. What it meant was that the problem of a mass of potentially competing Athelings existed for Beatrix every bit as much as it did for Chenwall for Mercia. Just like Edbert Prain, Egbert fled across the Channel and ended up in Charlemagne's court. He spent at least three years at the Frankish court and must have seen and learnt an awful lot while he was there, and he would have also had the chance to establish a relationship with a potentially powerful supporter in Charlemagne, who again would probably have no problem destabilising a foreign power and potential rival from time to time, in the words of Philip of Macedon, divide and rule. The relationship between the two may well have been cemented by marriage through Egbert's marriage to Redberger, a sister or sister-in-law of Charlemagne. Now in Wessex, things were not going well at court. The problem was not King Beatrix, as it happens, it was Queen Eadberg. It turned out that Eadberg allowed her glorious limage from offer to go to her head. Here are the words of a chap called Asser, a Welsh priest, contemporary of Alfred the Great, talking about Eadberg. As soon as she'd won the king's friendship and power throughout almost the entire kingdom, she began to behave like a tyrant after the manner of her father. To loathe every man Beatrix liked, to do all things hatefully to God and men, to denounce all those whom she could before the king, and thus by trickery to deprive them of either life or power. And if she could not achieve that end with the king's compliance, she killed them with poison. So, things were unsettled at the court of the West Saxons. Now, there are at least three interpretations I know of for what happened next, since, as you all know and can recite now by heart, the sources in Dark Age England are far and few, far and few, as far and few as are the lands where the Jumblers live. So it could be that, as Asa claimed, Eadberg ended up poisoning Hubby by mistake. It could be that Beatrix died in a bit of casual violence by the Ruissa from Mercia. But I'm nailing my colours to this third theory. This theory runs like this. So, at this time, you have to remember that Chenwolf is still distracted by the Welsh and by the East Anglian rebellion. The court of Wessex is in turmoil and Egbert saw his chance. He arrived in Wessex in 802 with as many men as he could carry and offered a better alternative. It's likely men joined up because in the resulting struggle, Beatrix was killed and Egbert was made the new king. Egbert is incidentally the first king from whom the current royal family can reasonably safely claim descent. They also do so from Cherditch, of course, but there are more twists and turns in that family tree than a snake in a jacuzzi. Hurrah for Egbert!
Back at home, a messenger covered in blood and the dirt of battle quite possibly clattered into the court of Wessex and threw himself at Edberg's feet and told her the bad news. Edberg was ready. She picked up her skirts and, in the words of Asher, Since Edberg was unable to stay in the land of the Saxons, she sailed overseas with countless treasures and went to Charlemagne. Charlemagne met her, apparently asked her then to choose whether she'd rather prefer to marry either him or his son. Eadberg chose the son, since Charles was an old withered sort of bloke, and his boy was young and lusty, which turned out to be the wrong choice, actually. Anyway, the long and short is that she was given a nunnery, where her behaviour was absolutely as outrageous as it had been at Winchester in Wessex, and she ended up alone, penniless, and died a beggar in Paovia in Italy. Until 805, Chenwolf was occupied bringing the East Anglians back into line. So Egbert's intervention had been well-timed. However, Chenwolf was nonetheless not powerless. It seems very likely that it was as his instigation that the elderman of the Huissa, Ethelmund, invaded Wessex and challenged Egbert. Ethelmund crossed the Thames at Kempsford in East Gloucestershire, invading Wessex through North Wiltshire and Somerset, an area that had been at dispute between Mercia and Wessex since the 7th century. In the event, Egbert didn't even have to get out of bed. Ethelmund was met by the men of Wiltshire, led by Alderman Weirstan, and despite the death of both commanders, the invading warband was defeated and turned away. The engagement meant that Egbert was safe on the throne for the moment and could consider priority number one achieved, survival. Chenwolf appears to have been either content to leave Egbert in place or just too preoccupied to do anything about it for now, which is more likely. Though by 805, East Anglia, Kent and Sussex were firmly back in the Mercian sphere of control. So Chenwolf would have been content that he recovered most of what offer had had. We then know very little, unfortunately, of the next 20 years. We know that Egbert turned his hand to his second priority, extending his kingdom. The obvious target was the remains of the British kingdom of Dumnonia, which equates pretty much to Devon and Cornwall. His raid of 815 into Cornwall was entirely successful from his point of view, though the game of Dumnonia, which had started with Chorlin in the 6th century, was not quite fully played out yet. Egbert and Wessex lordship was clearly resented by the Britons and the Cornish were very likely a consistent trouble to him. We also know that Chenwolf led the traditional Mercian raids into Wales and apparently with some success against the ancient Welsh kingdom of Powys. But during these years it was religion more than politics which may have been the bigger obsession. One of the issues concerned that third archdiocese which Offa had worked so hard to set up, the Archbishopric of Lichfield, an expression of Mercian power as much as of piety. And here Chenwolf, on Mercia's behalf, scores something of an own goal. There is plenty of muttering against the idea of this third Archbishopric in the Church. Clearly, it wasn't what the original plan had been, the plan set down by St Gregory of Blessed Memory in the 6th century. Churchmen adored and valued the traditions of the Anglican Church, and so churchmen objected to Chenwolf and the Pope, some quite violently. OK, so Chenwolf thought he could see a way through this. Fine, let's dump Lichfield. But we'll also move Canterbury, 
to London. That is to say, the Archbishopric of Canterbury to London. He reckoned there was a very good argument to be made that this had actually been St Gregory's original plan all along. It would effectively mean that Mercia would still keep their Archbishop because London was a Mercian town. Meanwhile, they'd also deprive Kent, troublesome Kent, of its Archbishop and Kentish archbishops have been centres of resistance in the past. Job done, everyone's happy. And for a while, it all went swimmingly. Pope was duly grateful about closing down Lichfield. Pope also agrees that London was St Gregory's original intention. The Church also agrees that London was St Gregory's original intention. All going really well. But then the Pope says... Nope, sorry, can't move the Archbishopric from Canterbury because it's too long. It's become custom and practice. So the net result of all this was simply that England's third diocese after just 11 years disappeared again and the Archbishopric of Lichfield was no more and Mercia no longer had its Archbishop. Chenwell's final defeat came in the last of a series of church councils held at an unknown place called Clovershow through the 8th century. The councils had been held for more than 60 years under the patronage of Mercia in her position as the Supreme Kingdom, and their rulings were applied to the whole English church. They struggled with a new problem for Christianity in England, the problem of success. The conversion period was well behind them, and structures had grown up to support the laity and provide pastoral care from the church. England had developed a rather distinctive pattern of pastoral care you can still see the results of even to this day, the Minster system, where monasteries or collections of clergy around cathedrals of churches provided support, hence why York is called York Minster rather than York Cathedral. The system seems to have been very successful. It's clear that by the later 8th century and 9th century, the Christian church held a central place in everyone's daily lives. But that popularity had also led to problems. So Anglo-Saxon thanes and lords couldn't quite get hold of the demands that the Christian church made. So they could understand the idea of a monastery where dedicated people gathered together to praise God and make sure their regular prayers went to God for their salvation. Okay, They couldn't often grasp the idea of living in poverty and chastity. Why, why would you want to do that? By the mid-8th century, the Clovershire councils were trying to deal with the problem of monks with luxurious clothes, feasts and lifestyles. And, a particular English curse, by the way, constant drunkenness. Many of the leading clergy came from exactly the same noble families as ruled the secular world, and often the style of living was pretty much indistinguishable. Also, the laity gave foundations with great abandon to the church, gave land and property, that sort of thing, and so the church grew in wealth and magnificence. But the laity hadn't quite got the idea that when they gave to the church, they were supposed to lose control. It was no longer theirs. Instead, the English church was far too dominated by the wishes of the local laity. So local churches dictated to by the local lords who said, "Mm, I'm going to make the appointment of the priest here, for example or I'm going to get the revenue from the land. Many religious leaders recognised the need to reform the church, to define these barriers between the laity and the religious, but it was hard work. In the 9th century, more and more foundations appeared that were very small, 
rather than the traditional large wealthy institutions, as groups of clergy sought to escape the conflicts and live according to the monastic rule. In the 8th century, England could boast of a scholasticism and artistic heritage of European stature. But by the later 9th century, things had clearly changed very dramatically. King Alfred would look back with nostalgia to the time when the English church had been full of learning, had produced beautiful religious books. But he had complained that now England had few scholars, almost none who were expert in Latin, and that England lacked teachers. The English church by then was for Alfred wealthy but moribund. It's a challenge that Alfred would try to meet, as clearly the leaders of the 8th and early 9th century had failed to meet. England faced economic change as well. The 7th and 8th centuries had seen the growth of towns as lords recognised their value of converters of goods to money and urban centres had grown, particularly the great emporia like London and Southampton, Ipswich and York, where goods from the hinterland met with traders, where traders from different regions and countries were able to meet other traders and grow rich. From the late 8th century, this begins to change, and these emporia decline. Now, from later perspectives, the temptation had always been to blame the Vikings. It seemed like an obvious solution. But in fact, the decline seems to have started much earlier. One problem was probably coinage, and clearly a scarcity of bullion. And in fact, this leads to two very different responses. In Northumbria, there is consistently devaluation, to the point where it becomes essentially a base metal coinage. The number of coins increases dramatically, no doubt alongside the inevitable inflation. South of the Humber, meanwhile, the problem was a lack of coins, which choked trade. Now that's not to say that the decline of urban centres was solely due to changes in coinage, but decline there was and we're not entirely clear why. In London Witch, which was around present-day Covent Garden and Aldwych, only three new buildings were built after 770. Several alleyways fell into disrepair. Evidence of manufacturing declined dramatically. And by the mid-9th century, London Witch had basically been all but abandoned and reverted to agricultural use, and any urban activity was solely centred on the old Roman city of London Burr. A similar decline goes on at Southampton, York and other places. It's not clear that economic activity more generally was affected to the same degree as suggested by the decline of the emporia. There is some evidence that some of this change was about lords bringing production within their own centres. And as always, it's a patchy situation. So places like Canterbury, Winchester, Rochester, these appear to flourish in the period, with guilds and fraternities appearing that presage a later medieval age. But before the Vikings come to throw everything up in the air, in general, Anglo-Saxon kings are clearly trying hard to revive a flagging economy. After the relative political peace and quiet then of the early 9th centuries, the 820s see an absolutely seismic shift in the politics of England. Now, up to now, there's no great evidence that Egbert was a particularly ambitious leader of the West Saxons. Yep, he did his bit kept the pressure up on the Britons of the southwest, but for 20 years he lived side by side with the ever-dominant Mercia as ever. But on Chenwolf's death, 
In 821, Mercier hits the self-destruct button. Chenwolf's brother, Churlwolf, succeeded him, and for two years the pattern of Mercian dominance continued. But in 823, Churlwolf was violently removed from the throne, and in 824, the bloodletting continued. Alderman, who had been close to Churlworth and his brother, were killed in the mayhem of the struggle for power. And from that mayhem finally emerged a king called Bjornwolf. It is possible that this, the B dynasty, represents the family from whom Offa had taken the throne way back when. But the protracted struggle had yet again opened the possibility to other kingdoms of freedom from the Mercian yoke. And Bjornwolf was beset by rebellion in East Anglia, and even more significantly, Egbert must at this point also have withdrawn his allegiance. Bjornwolf appears to have taken a hard line with this, unsurprisingly. Or maybe Egbert's wars in the southwest seemed too good a chance for him to miss, because Bjornwolf marched south into the Wiltshire countryside, so long a matter of dispute between the Mercians and the West Saxons. Or we can then be really confident of that there was a battle at a place called Ellendoon, which is probably modern Rawton. The battle is mentioned in a number of sources, but most of them written many centuries after the event itself. But, if you believe all the stories, we have a picture of a game but far from confident king in Egbert. Confident in his power, the Mercian, Beanwolf, sent his demands across the battle lines for both return of land and submission to him. And Egbert was apparently inclined to agree. But his thanes would have none of it and accordingly the armies lined up on opposite ridges. Egbert's army, we are told, looked pale and lean. But it was the outnumbered army of Wessex that attacked the Mercian shield wall on a hot summer's day. And despite the disparity in numbers, it was Beornwolf and the Mercians' day to run. At the grand old age of 56, suddenly the outlook for Egbert was transformed in a way that doesn't really seem to have been of his making, or even possibly ambition. Life might begin at 40 now, but it certainly did not in 825, and he may have thought that 56 was not an age to start on a new career. But Egbert seems to have then been alive to the possibilities immediately, and the Mercian hegemony unravelled with extraordinary speed, reflecting possibly the brutality with which it had been imposed. Within just four years of Ellendoon, Wessex was the first of the English states to have achieved formal submission throughout England, including Northumbria, in a famous meeting at Dore. Egbert I ordered his son Ethelwolf to push the Mercians out of Kent, and by the following year the Mercian puppet Baldred had been expelled. Essex quickly followed, and the last king of Essex was Sigrid, expelled by Egbert in 829 and thus the kings of Essex come to an end. Meanwhile, Sussex had also submitted. None of these states were ever to regain their independence. And there is some suggestion that southern kingdoms came more willingly to Egbert than they had originally to Mercia. Here's the entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Egbert sent Ethelwulf, his son, and Eelston, his bishop, to Kent with a great host. They drove King Baldred north over the Thames and the people of Kent turned to Ethelwolf and Surrey, Sussex and Essex because they'd been wrongly forced from their loyalty to his kinsmen. The thing about being wrongly forced from loyalty to their kinsmen 
This suggests that Egbert's family were ancient rulers in the south, and that Egbert was actually restoring what Mercian power had taken away so long ago. Meanwhile, Beowulf had rushed back to Mercia with his authority in tatters. With Wessex marching into Kent, the East Angles took the opportunity once again to try and throw off the Mercian yoke. They rebelled, they appealed to Egbert for help, but as it happens, they were perfectly capable of doing it on their own. Because Beowulf invaded in 826, only to be defeated and killed. His successor in Mercia was Ludica, and he tried again to subjugate the East Angles in 827, but he met exactly the same fate, and that was effectively that. East Anglia appeared perfectly content to accept a probably nominal West Saxon overlordship. Then, in 829, defence turned to offence at last, as Egbert rode his wave and invaded Mercia, defeating Wiglaf, who was the third Mercian king in as many years. Wiglaf was forced into exile, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle recorded, and the same year King Egbert conquered the kingdom of Mercia and all that was south of the Humber, and he was the eighth king who was Brett Walder. As it happens, just to remind you, this is the first time that the word Brett Walder was actually written down. Bede, who mentions the first seven rulers with overall mastery of all Anglo-Saxons, Bede just uses the Latin word imperium. Anyway, Egbert kept going, and later in the same year, 829, apparently he met and received the submission of the Northumbrians at Dore, near Sheffield. Now, there is much debate about this. Some historians say this is simply a meeting of equals, a chance for a wagging of chins. Others, that Egbert invaded Northumbria, defeated its king, received his submission. The tradition, it has to be said, is very much the latter, so that's what we're going to go with. So there we have it. Apparently, at last, what even Offa had never managed, England combined as one nation. Except it's really not like that. There is no doubt that a significant sea change had occurred. The heptarchy of Anglo-Saxon states was now gone for good. The kingdoms of Kent and Sussex would forever be dominated and soon integrated into Wessex. But this is still a development of the old world. Just like Offa, Egbert was primarily a king of one Anglo-Saxon nation who'd managed to win leadership and preeminence over other English kings. This was not a vision or a transformation. In fact, it all feels rather like an extraordinary period of five years that might well have caught Egbert as much by surprise as anyone. Who knows? And truth to be told, the situation unravelled a little bit in the following years, not catastrophically, but definitely backwards, as far as Wessex was concerned. So in 830, Wiglaf was back in Mercia, and although Mercia never threatened Wessex's power, it was now definitely back in existence with its own king. And it might well be that they pushed Wessex back off some disputed land in Berkshire. And it's also possible that Essex was brought back into the Mercian orbit. Meanwhile, King Athelstan, the East Anglian king responsible for the death of two Mercian kings, seems to have established his full independence from both Wessex and Mercia. We can imagine that Northumbria was also highly likely to have gone its own way. The loss of Egbert's dominance in so short a time has given rise to a number of theories to explain it. One of them is that Egbert's success had something to do with the Carolingian kings of France. Charlemagne's influence might very well have helped Egbert gain the throne originally against the wishes of the Mercians. Maybe 
Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, had helped Egbert defeat the Mercians in 825-2026. The point being that from 830, the Frankish Empire suffers a number of internal conflicts, which would have meant the withdrawal of any support. All of this is theoretically possible, I suppose, but I'm sure we'll never know for sure. Egbert's story wasn't quite finished, so Dumnonia, reduced to now Cornwall, remained a thorn in Egbert's side. In 836, the Vikings tried to exploit this division and joined the Cornish. Their joint army started out on a raid into southwest Wessex, and Egbert's attempt to throw them out failed, and he was defeated at a place called Carhampton in Somerset. Since it had worked once, two years later, the Vikings and the Cornish tried out the same plan. The Vikings may have landed at Plymouth, and they marched across Dartmoor towards Exeter. However, this time Egbert was waiting for them in the Tane Valley at a place called Hingston Down. The English army chased the joint Cornish and Viking army back across Dartmoor, and the threat was averted. And it may well be, actually, that this marks, this point marks, the end of Dumnonia as an independent kingdom. Egbert then died in 839, His reign had transformed England's political leadership south of the Humber, a complete turnaround. Of course, the Vikings will begin to create much more fundamental change, but at least when they arrive, they will find a united Greater Wessex to face them. Next time, we will indeed introduce the Vikings. But that, of course, will not be next week, because next week it's back to the history of England for episode 196, England at the Dawn of the Tudor Age a chance to step back and take stock of how England looked when Henry VII came to the throne. But until then, thanks so much to all of you for listening, for your super kind comments and donations. Good luck and have a great week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.